<laughs> and we're back in it, man. Well, we are back in it. Talk a little baseball, a little bit of uh, social media, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Well, you know, this guy's uh, his career spans different aspects, you know? And yet he's still a legend. Oof. And we're back at the Sports Experience Podcast. It's me, Chris Quinn, with my co-host, Dominic Detola, And we're just a couple of comics who love sports, talking sports, and back in the saddle, man, who we got today. We got a borderline... Hall of Fame pitcher, borderline not because of what he did on the field, but a gentleman by the name of Kurt Schilling. Yeah, I think it'll be sad if he continues to just be a borderline Hall of Famer, but we'll definitely get into that one. Dude, I want a class going into the Hall of Fame of Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and Kurt Schilling just to see the looks on people's faces, just for the troll aspect. In one class. Oh yeah, that's what I mean, just one class, because there was nobody that made it in last year, which was kind of some douchebaggery on the butthurt writers part but we can get into that later yeah we will we'll, we'll start with shilling give me yeah. give me some give me some stuff on him yeah. all right born uh, november 19th 1966 in anchorage alaska of all places big family yeah mm-hmm. definitely uh, big family was he one of 10 kids i believe something like that yeah yeah they were a military family yep and that's kind of one of the things i've noticed about some of a lot of these athletes is they come from military backgrounds like with parents and stuff like, uh, I know David Robinson's a good example. Some of the people we're researching now, they have uh, military families. Yeah, and, well, uh, I, I bet it goes one of two ways with the discipline yeah. kind of, you adhere to it or you go the other way, like, no, I'm never going to adhere to discipline my entire life. So, And then we never talk about them doing sports because exactly. <laughs> it requires so much discipline. Exactly, exactly. Self-control, but... Uh, Although he was born in Anchorage, he uh, grew up in the Phoenix area. Yeah. That's kind of where his family settled. Never knew that. Yeah. He went to uh, Shadow Mountain High School up in Phoenix. Great baseball player. Yeah. Um, was not drafted, though, out of high school, and he went and played some ju- juco ball. Yeah, some junior college, which, I mean, I actually had just recently been reading about, because we read local news here in Tucson, about Pima's. Uh, baseball program and how many guys they kind of produce and all of that stuff and how they are starting to look at more local. And as soon as I read this, I was like, oh, this is this story, except for in Phoenix, because he went to Yavapai. Which is up in Prescott, which, which isn't is, too far from Phoenix. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's like their local market of Arizona. That's what they were talking about, getting guys from not from California. And you could see... Which is great because... Kids, A, need the chance if yep. they're not drafted, and B, if they don't qualify academically, or they just want to be like, man, if I ball out for two years in JUCO, I can just enter the draft and people will notice me. Exactly. And that's exactly what he does. Yeah. And it, this is what is so beneficial to these guys who don't get, I would say, just like the big attention from their high school play. They're toolsy guys who are overlooked for various reasons, but you know, need to develop more. Yeah. A year or two out. That's just absolutely perfect. Yeah. You know, and goes to Yavapai in 1985. And then by 1986, he's drafted in the second round at this time, there were two, three different drafts drafted in the second round by the Boston Red Sox. Well, he was drafted in the second round of the last January January, draft ever. And that had to be set up for Juco kids coming up. Yeah. And them trying to differentiate, essentially. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he has a pretty good minor league career with Boston. 
because uh, in 86, uh, he goes 7-3 and three with a 2.59 ERA in lower A ball, 93.2 innings pitch, 75 Ks. 87 dips a little bit uh, as far as um, his productivity as he enters a higher class of A ball. 8-15, uh, only a 3.82 ERA, though, with uh, 189 strikeouts in 184 innings pitched. And then we'll get back into his strikeout numbers and well th- those numbers ring throughout his whole career. Yeah. It, it's this is why once I love he gets his it. chance though. Oh yeah. And we're going to we- go into this as he enters Major League Baseball, but uh in 88 doing a great job as far as um you know in Double A, he uh 13 and 7 3. Uh, 03 ERA, 151 innings pitched. And uh, in baseball, you see this a lot. I wanted to bring this up. Towards the end of July is the trade deadline. And teams that are looking to make pennant pushes will usually deal some of their better minor leaguers to non-contending teams for good players that they think will push them over the hump. And in 88, the Red Sox, after a down 87 year, are leading the American League East. They're in the thick of things to win their division and have a chance to go to the World Series. Granted, they don't because the A's kick the shit out of them in the LCS, but they need some starting pitching help. And they go to the Orioles, uh, who have Mike Boddicker, great veteran pitcher. I believe he was on their 83 World Series winning team. And he is traded along with Brady Anderson uh, to Baltimore for Mike Boddicker. And Schilling is now not with the Red Sox and with the Orioles. Well, we see this happen a lot of the times with clubs that, try, like you said, try and make this push. And I think it was famously the Yankees for like decades were doing it until Steinbrenner finally got suspended. Yeah. And then they finally let some youth players come up. And I think that's what I always think of when play when teams make these trades for for literally going yeah Yeah. literally going all in and letting all of their prospects kind of go and it's sad when it really doesn't work out like we saw for the red sox at that point um and he goes to the orioles and they just like flat out don't use him well, they don't. They use him, but they don't use him correctly because in '88 he's actually a late September call-up. Oh, okay. He's 0-3 with four starts and a 9.82 ERA. Granted, in '88 he's only 21 years old. Okay, but yes. you're thinking like, okay, well, we traded for him and Brady Anderson, who is a future starter in center field for like a decade. Let's get this starting pitch because Schilling's a big dude. He's a big power pitcher, six five, two oh five. I mean, just you would think that they would know how to use him. But they don't. Or wait for him to develop. That that was the thing that I kind of, when, when I was reading with him with the Orioles, was like they kind of expected more from him right away. Which is tough considering what did he play, a year or two of Juco ball post high school? I mean, he did well in the minors, but by that same token, I mean, you got to bring him along. Yep. Because in 89, they actually do something smart, and he spends most of the year at AAA, and he's kicks ass 13 and 11 3.21 era 27 starts he had over 185 innings pitched that season well that's what i was thinking with 89 was they sent him back down which was it it just has to be good for his control because i feel like he wasn't hitting the pitches he wasn't hitting his spots yes and he'll credit johnny padres um of later the phillies for really kind of making him the pitcher that he 
eventually became. Which I, I want to point this out, which I always find so interesting about pitchers when they are like, no, I found this catcher that made me the pitcher I am. Because sometimes catchers just don't get that yep. credit that they deserve. Oh, well, Johnny Padres was his pitching coach. Oh, so, pitching coach. Yeah, oh, okay. he was his pitching coach, not his catcher. Go. But, I mean, they had a good catcher in Philadelphia at the time, and well, I'll probably go. go into it. But um, 1990... Um, he only made one start in 89, lost only five games. Uh, 1990, uh, 14 starts at AAA, but uh, then he comes up to the big club and uh, 24, and he only goes one and two. He's aged in his age 24 season, he's one and two. He only has one win by age 24. And Baltimore really doesn't know what the hell to do with him at this point after 19, uh, after basically 1990. They have no idea what to do. Baltimore is looking to make a push in 91 to add some veteran power to their lineup. They go to Houston, and Glenn Davis throughout the mid to late 80s was a great power hitting first baseman. Glenn Davis, you know, I think we might have even talked about him in those Mets episodes with Dave, um, how good he was. Yeah. And on January 10th, 1991, they acquire Glenn Davis, but they trade to the Houston Astros, not only shilling... They trade Pete Harnish, another starter who eventually became an all-star, and they trade center fielder and perennial gold glover and World Series champion, future Schilling teammate, again, Steve Finley. And looking back, that's just not, not anything good for Baltimore to give up three players of that caliber for a guy who barely played for them in Glenn Davis. Yes. And uh, in 1991... He's still struggling to crack the starting rotation in Houston, which, much like Baltimore, they have no idea what the fuck to do with him. They have no idea what the fuck to do with him. Well, I felt like this was interesting because, like you said, that trade was god-awful, but Houston didn't necessarily reap the benefits from that. They reaped with, it with Kurt Schilling. With Kurt Schilling, yeah. They reaped it in terms of Finley. Yes, yes. And they reaped it in terms of Harnish, but they made Schilling not a starter in Houston. He was basically a middle reliever. Yes. 56 games, a three and five record, just under a sub four ERA only had almost 76 innings pitch, but he had 71 strikeouts. But after that season, that one season with Houston, he basically has a godsend happen to him in that off season. Okay. This is, yeah, this is what I want to talk about because yeah. I feel like even throughout this whole time, his controls, not there, his, Maybe his confidence isn't there. Oh, it's probably shot. Yeah, and Houston trades him to Philly. Mm -hmm. And at this point, Philly isn't a great team. And this is what benefits him is the Phillies are kind of a mess. They need arms. He's traded for Jason Grimsley. Um, I don't know if I brought it up on the podcast, but Jason Grimsley's the guy that went full diehard to get Albert Bell's corked bat. Yes. Like he crawled through it's the vent. It's yeah. one of my favorite He's stories. the one that outed Roger Clemens because for doing HGH. Yeah. yeah. The umpires put the bat in away until after the game, and they check it, and he climbed in there and replaced it. It's, <laughs> this it's, is a Paul Sorrento bat. Yeah, no, it's one of the best. Oh, my God. Yeah, that guy is a – first like, off, he's a genius. Yes. No. <laughs> I wonder if he was like, now I know what a TV dinner feels like. <laughs> but whenever I hear oh, the name Paul God. Sorrento, it makes me think of that Casey Jones from the uh, Ninja Turtles movie. A Jose Canseco back? You didn't pay for this, you know, like money. <laughs> you got to understand crumpet before you understand, understand cricket, cricket, my man. <laughs> 
But he was traded just before the regular season started, too. Yeah. So Houston apparently had had enough. April 2nd, 1992, he's traded to Philly. And, and Philly the, gives him time. Philly lets him start because yep. they're probably like, you know, bad news bearsing it just like, you know what? You're apparently good. Why don't you start games for us? And that's exactly what happened. And uh, in that, he starts uh, 26 of 42 games. Goes 14 and 11. He wins more games in that 92 season than he had won in his entire big league career. Yeah, and it's the previous four seasons. Yep. 2.35 uh, ERA, 191 strikeouts, and he even had two saves. Yeah. Because they were using him in were... middle relief and, you know, uh, closing out games. But he had 226 innings pitched. And this is the first season where you see. This guy's a horse. This guy's a horse in the rotation, possible top of the rotation guy. We like Kurt Schilling. Our team around him, not so great, but we gave this guy a chance, and he and definitely responded. I was going to say he can get the team behind him and have these winning records because you kind of see with bad teams, they don't necessarily rally behind bad pitchers, if that makes sense. They're kind of like, well, this guy's up. Let's, you know, it's like, screw it. And yeah. With Schilling, I felt like in the Phillies, because we look at this 93 season, the whole kind of team kind of comes together. Yeah. One of the interesting things I wanted to bring up about this 93 team, Schilling included, their starting rotation, like their main basically four guys at the top were... Kurt Schilling, Terry Mulholland, uh, what's his name, Tommy Green, and Danny Jackson. All four of those guys were acquired via trade or free agency. None of them came up through the Philly system at all. It, it was very unheard of at the time to have a rotation like that. And, you know, as, as much as good as veterans as Mulholland or former World Series heroes like Danny Jackson were, you could tell mid-season that Schilling is top of the rotation top of the rotation he's the guy yes he's the guy and he doesn't disappoint because in 34 starts he goes 16 and 7 seven complete games and 186 strikeouts which you just do not see the complete games and I don't think you'll see the amount of strikeouts because of this so yeah this was the big thing that people were talking about was when he was getting into a zone and it was like inning six, seven, eight. Like, and this was uh, Terry Francone who was. Who yeah, was, later. Because well, uh, Jim Fergosi's managing the team at okay, this time. Yeah. Okay. Well, this was Terry talking about him. Yeah. And, and he was just like, yeah, when he was in that zone, we would not take him out. Like, there was no reason to. Well, there's no reason to if he's not hurt and he no. wants to keep pitching. But I, I mean, feel like that's the opposite of the way people think of baseball now, if that makes yeah. sense. If the, you know what I mean? They're like, oh, it's it's uh, 100 pitches, you're out. Yeah, I, I mean, speaking from what I've seen, San Diego right now has a ton of good young starters. They're maybe going four innings at best yep. per start, you know, which is fine because they have so goddamn many of them. But yeah, you'll never see like Roy Halladay was the last guy to do the complete the long, games and the yep. shutouts and things like that. I mean, that's a bygone era at this juncture. But um, the 93 Philly, we'll do an episode on them. Yes, trust we will. me. Yes. But they were a very interesting team because A, they did the money ball thing as far as I think they had three guys with a hundred walks and like four guys with like 90, um, lots of character driven players as far as just 
hard-nosed badasses. John Cruck is always my favorite, former Padre. But um, Darren Dalton was his catcher, and Dalton was kind of like oh, okay. the leader of the locker room. Veteran guy, badass. Um, That's who I was thinking of. The team kind of abided by this thing called the code. And the code can be called different things in baseball in different locker rooms, but it's basically like when we have shit going on, we hash this out in house. Oh like, yeah. You know, nothing gets out. We handle this on our own. We do our own thing, but Schilling wasn't the type of guy who necessarily bought into that fully. He would go on a lot of Philadelphia talk shows as far as the radio. He was very like, whenever there's a camera around, who's there? It's Kurt Schilling. And granted, he's the number one pitcher on the NL East's best team in 93, but it rubbed a lot of his teammates the wrong way. And he, his actions on camera were very not... I would team just oriented. they're not team oriented and they make him look like kind of a douchebag. Yes. And this is where I want to lead in because the Phillies win the division that year. They go worst to first. It's pretty incredible how they pulled this shit off. Yep. And they go into the playoffs to play the big bad Braves in the last season of pennant play as far as just two divisions. You either win your division or you're fucking out. Yes. So they go into the LCS, and everyone's picking the Braves. And it's a clash of styles. It's the dirty, grimy, grindy Phillies against, you know, the straight-laced Braves yep. with their pitching staff. They had acquired Maddox during the offseason, and everybody's thinking, oh, this, this series will go five games. Kurt Schilling doesn't feel this way and is an absolute fucking badass in this series and throughout the postseason for the rest of his career. But um, in the 93 NLCS, he's named the MVP. What's startling about this, he doesn't win a single game in the LCS. No, he doesn't record a win. He doesn't record a win. And this plays into what you were saying before about his on-camera type of thing. Because he has two incredible starts. He has a total of 16 innings pitched, a 1.69 ERA, four runs given up during those games, 19 strikeouts. Yep. Atlanta's lineup at this time is just stacked, and he's shutting them down. But in both of his games that he pitches where he is set to be the winning pitcher, in the bottom of the ninth inning in both games, the Phillies have a closer, Mitch Wild Thing Williams. Now, the thing about that is he lived up to his nickname and got into a lot of messes. And I don't want to disrespect him because from what I've read and everything else, by that point in the season, he had been used so much that he's just running on fumes. But Fregosi and Padres are just sending him out there because he's their closer. Their bullpen was relatively weak throughout the entire season. And in both games one and four, which the Phillies actually end up winning, because game one, they win to go up 1-0, but in game four, they actually tie the series. Yeah. Or I think it's four or five, but they go up 3-2 in the Schilling game. Williams gives up leads, but in extra innings, you know, Kim Batiste in the first one uh, had this like little bouncer down the line. And then uh, Lenny Dykstra's crazy ass hits a home run at Fulton County Stadium to put him ahead. But Schilling doesn't win. Because since Williams had the game tied, 
he ends up getting the he win. He ends up getting the win. And regardless, Schilling's the MVP, and they're headed to the World Series after they win 4-2. But I want to say this. There was a moment when they panned to Schilling in the bullpen, and Williams is, yeah. is, is pitching, and he just has a towel around his head, and people are like, why? Like, his teammates were really bummed with this. They're like, that's just disrespectful. Like, we need to get behind him. And his it's response... Code, man. It's the code, and his response was, I couldn't watch it. And that's like... Well, you know what? If you don't want to... Here's my thing, not to go on a rant here. Sorry to interrupt, but... Dude, if, we got Nikki Tangents? If it upsets you that much, nobody in that clubhouse will be pissed at you if when you're taken out of the game and they put Williams in, if you just go back into the clubhouse, grab a beer... And watch it on the TV. Why are you doing that out in the open? Why Why are you doing that out in the open? Yep. Why are the cameras panning to you? Why are you being so self-aggrandizing? Why are you putting a teammate down? I bet, and Mitch Williams through, since then has disliked Kurt Schilling for that type of behavior. Yep. And honestly, I don't blame him. No, I don't blame him. If Schilling just went back into the clubhouse, cracked open a brew, and just watched the, watched the TV... None of his teammates, I bet, would have cared. They would have been like, we get it. Trust me. We probably didn't want to watch it either. Well, that's that was something that I read was that Kurt said that he's the type of pitcher like I hate because he is so wild. And I, th- I feel like he w- Schilling was so controlled. So I understand like not not wanting him to relieve you essentially but like you have to but then again you gotta go yeah you have not only have to back your team but if you don't want to put williams in go back out for the ninth inning exactly like let's see what you got yeah you know and it rubbed people the wrong way and it rubbed his his phillies teammates the wrong way and we don't see this team that won this 93 pennant we don't see him do anything for the next like three or four years no absolutely nothing so back on track they they make the no i mean that was great um they make the world series and they're playing an even more straight-laced badass team in the toronto blue jays yes shilling's your game one starter and he has kind of a rocky outing it's really one of the only rocky outings of his entire postseason career i think John Olerud had a homer to kind of break the game open, but the Phillies were winning at the beginning for him. And uh, in that series, it's back and forth. Game four is wild. is what changed everything. In the top of the eighth inning, the Phillies are winning 14-9, to nine, and they have to go to the bullpen. And Toronto, who is littered with Hall of Famers and All-Stars, and it's a rainy night at the vet, just cold and shitty. Toronto comes back and wins in the next two innings with Williams essentially blowing it 15 to 14. 15, so you're, yeah. you're in a 3-1 hole and you're set to play game five, your last game of the series in Philadelphia at the vet, and you're sending Schilling to the mound. And in my opinion, he pitches from what I've witnessed. You know, I'm not privy to anything pre-1990 as far as like World Series games. He pitched, in my opinion, the most dominant World Series start of arguably the last like 40 years. Yes. He pitches, mind you, this is Toronto's lineup. Let me just explain this to you for the for those of you who don't understand. You have three Hall of Famers in it. You have Ricky Henderson, Roberto Alomar, and Paul Molitor. You have Joe Carter, 30 homer, 100 RBI man for like seven, eight straight years. 
all-star. You have Tony Fernandez, all-star shortstop. John Olerud, all-star, led the AL and Major League Baseball in batting average that year. You have Devon White, gold glove and all-star center fielder in center field. Basically, Juan Guzman is pitching. Juan Guzman was an all-star for a couple of years for Toronto. The only all-star who's on that roster playing that night is Pat fucking Borders, the catcher, who was the World Series MVP the year before. Schilling goes out, pitches a complete game shutout, five hits to that lineup to keep his team in the game. Well, to a lineup that literally doesn't have a dead spot. If no, that not makes at all. sense where you're like, well, he's the best shortstop. We have to put him in or, or what, whatever. You know what I mean? The, the and, dead spot is the pitcher who has to hit because it's the National League. And exactly. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. And Schilling does. It, it's such an amazing especially in this situation, which we'll, we'll constantly be bringing up, is he was such a great playoff pitcher that I can't believe he's not in the Hall of Fame just for that. Just for, No, and I am 100% in agreement with you. They win that game 2-0, to zero, and then, of course, in game six, yep. you see him on the bench with the towel because the Phillies lose a ninth inning lead on a Joe Carter miracle home run down the left field line, and... That ends basically the, the magic for that team franchise for a long time. Yeah. But uh, in uh, from 94 to 96, he starts having some elbow issues. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's limited to only 56 starts during this kind of span and only goes 18 and 23. And by this time, the Phillies are really starting to kind of find a home in the basement of the NL East. Well, he called it his blue streak, and he actually dyed his hair blue for a little yeah. bit. Uh -huh. Yeah, And he said it was his worst moment of his career because it was really the only time in which he wasn't on a winning baseball team. And it's such an interesting thing because he keeps getting, and we'll see this, like he really keeps trading to these teams and doing fantastic yeah and i so, mean it it comes in uh 97 was like his breakout season because he makes his first all-star team at 30 17 and 11 sub 3 era 254.1 there are guys that don't do that anymore 254 and a third innings pitched 319 strikeouts to lead the league and then in 98 35 starts another all-star season 15 wins 3.25 ERA, a league-leading 15 complete games, 268.2 innings pitched, and another 300-strikeout season. I think that's the stuff I really love about him is you can just put him in and trust him for the game. He's a horse, man. He's that's a horse, he is. Like, yeah. I mean, that's, that's what you want out of your number one starter, despite the fact Philly during this era is winning in the mid-60s of games this year out yep. of 162. And you can tell this is starting to wear on him because he's doing his, he's back from his injury completely, 98 or 97, 98, and you can see that he wants to be on a winning baseball team. Yeah, the only thing Philly fans can cheer about during this era is people whipping D-cells at J.D. Drew in right field at the vet. That uh, actually shit. happened, but yep. uh, 99... Philly fans are the best, yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> 99 All-Star. He started the All-Star game there, yep. the famous one at Fenway. 15 wins, 152 Ks. Uh, missed a little bit of time with injury. Uh, but by 2000, he's kind of like had it with Philly. Not the city or the fans. He's just had it with not competing for shit. 
Hey, everybody. Just want to take a quick break to uh, let you know that our Sports Experience podcast is brought to you by Engel Studio here, and uh, they're here in Tucson for all your recording needs. Well, you can see in 99 because he really had a, another great season. He actually broke their strikeout record with mm-hmm. 319, and he pretty much says, like, hey, you guys aren't putting money into this team. You need to trade me somewhere, and you can get whatever prospects you want. Yeah, and he broke Steve Carlton's record. Yes. Steve fucking Carlton, probably arguably the greatest left-handed pitcher who has ever played baseball. That's whose record Kurt Schilling broke. And this is why we see this kind of thing where guys are really destroying it but they get traded because the Phillies aren't just like set up for him no I mean it's just a garbage operation it's a garbage yes I mean and he gets his wish uh another late July trade deadline trade um in 2000 uh July 26th 2000 he's traded back home to Arizona to Phoenix up to Phoenix for uh pitchers Omar uh Dahl Nelson Figueroa, first baseman Travis Lee, Vicente Padilla, another pitcher as well. So it's a four-for-one kind of deal with Arizona sending kind of mid-range, lower-tier starters just in volume plus Travis Lee to play first base. So to kind of make up the difference. And Kurt Schilling joins another very famous pitcher in Arizona for a little one-two punch in Randy Johnson. Yes. And while they missed the playoffs in 2000, 2001 is when shit gets real. Well, what do you think about this as they're the two starting pitchers? Because I feel like it's one of the most dominant one-two. Not ever, but it has to be in that class. It's no worse than top three of all time. Yeah. I, in my, I can't think, at least in my lifetime, I can't think of a anything one, better. And this is where those Nancy Pants Hall of Fame voters piss me off so much. They're like, well, Kurt Schilling never won a Cy Young. Well, yeah, look at who's on his fucking team with him winning those Cy Youngs. I and was Roger trying- Clemens. Jesus, fuck. I was trying to look up and see, because I know he got second in the Cy Young at least three times. Yeah. I was trying to look up and see if he got second the most without winning it. It's got to be close. Because that's the kind of shit where you're just like, yeah, no, the second the second in that year is, why would you ever talk shit on that? Yeah. Oh, I lost to Randy goddamn Johnson. Come the fuck on. Randy Johnson and him, this is the other thing that I found so interesting, were such, they, they had to be so intimidating on the mound because Randy Johnson is 7'4", Kurt Schilling is 6'5". <laughs> but you know what I mean where it's just like the tall guys on the mound are just that much more intimidating. It's it that I loved this era of Diamondbacks baseball. Well, if you're thinking about it, like just from a strategic standpoint, in baseball you're playing three and four game series all goddamn year long. When you have those as your top two starters – Basically, your goal is to win every series you play so you can build games over 500. Yep. If you're in a losing streak and then you go to Schilling and Johnson, losing streaks fucking stop, you know? Yeah. Like, no, it's, it's, that's what I mean. It's really this, uh, this culmination of these two pitchers and some good fielders. We see the Diamondbacks really, I mean, 2001, man, let's talk about they, it. They, they turned it, I mean, Schilling, 20 league, uh, yep. led the team 22 wins. 
starts 35, complete games, six of them, innings pitched 256, sub three ERA, 293 strikeouts. And this is where he go. He starts doing his 20 game winning years. Yeah. And, and it's, it's really it's impressive. His, and it's his age 34, 35 yep. season. And he's just dominating people with that nice four seam smoke. And then he's got that devastating splitter fork ball that just it's a heavy ball and it just drops off the table. Well, this that was something I that wanted was his to bread and butter. I wanted to talk to you about because I, I was obviously reading up on him and they were like, Yeah, he had two pitches. Like he could throw a slider, he could he throw, throw a, a curveball. Curve but no, his fastball and splitter were elite enough. Like Randy Johnson only had two pitches. Yeah. He had his fastball and he had his slider. And his slider. But yeah. I just found it so interesting because they were saying as to how great his fastball was was only complimentary to how great his splitter was. That was and his that best was, pitch. You would just trick guys on those all day, and you'd just be like, I have no idea what's coming. Well, and he threw it so hard and kind of heavy that when the late break on it, you would think you're hitting just a regular fastball, and then by the time it got to the plate, it just, just vanishes. Yeah, yeah it just crazy. fucking vanishes. No, I loved it. But um, they go to the postseason. They win the AL West. All or NL West, pardon me. Uh, he's an All Star, and this is where we see postseason. This is, this is where the magic happens. Yeah, we're back at the Forum, but <laughs> no. Uh, they play, they play St. Louis uh, in the NLDS because uh, new format and whatnot. He has two amazing starts, two complete games, one shutout, eighteen innings pitched, obviously. One earned run on a home run. That was it. And yep. 18 strikeouts in 18 innings, a .5 ERA. He goes 2-0 and because you know what? He got to finish all those games. They didn't throw Mitch Williams out there. Granted, they have a very shitty closer who costs him a World Series game, but 2-0 and against the Two, Cardinals. Yep. Then they go into Atlanta, kick the shit out of them. One start, one complete game, one run, 12 strikeouts. Like, what are you going to do at that point? You have Schilling and Johnson roll into the World Series against the Yankees, and everybody's just coming in their pants going, 9-11, everyone loves the Yankees. Well, guess what? Fuck the Yankees. Fuck the Yankees. Bunch of douchebags. And you know what? Schilling and Johnson, thank you. Well, you look at, and this is, oh, man, I love that rant, but fuck, fuck the Yankees. Ooh, planes hit your buildings. Now we have to root for the evil empire. Go fuck yourself. There's 49 other states. But he goes uh, up against the Yankees. He he throws in a 1.69 ERA, which is so crazy in the World Series. Well, he comes out game one and just dominates, and they win. And then game two, you have Johnson, and you're dominating. And that this series pisses me off so much. I'm sorry to go on a rant here. This should have been a clean sweep for the Diamondbacks. Oh, interesting. This should have been. They were so much better than the Yankees, but they just completely shit the bed at Yankee Stadium with their bullpen. And Schilling starts, and this was a controversial move. I actually agreed with Brenly back in the day, and I still agree with him now. I think they sent Brian Anderson in game three, and they lost to the Yankees at Yankee Stadium. Schilling comes out in game four and is just pitching an absolute gem. They're kicking the shit out of him. And then late game, they in take the him eighth, right? out, yeah. which they really shouldn't have because Brenly, by pitching Schilling, is saying, we need to win game four to go up 3-1 and force the issue. Yes. Taking him out for the bullpen 
I don't know if it makes a hell of a lot of sense. And it came back and bit him in the ass because they lost that game. Yep. Game five, another disaster. That's when everyone was like, oh, Derek Jeter hit a home run, Mr. November in late innings. Oh, you know what? Fuck you, Jeter, you dickweed. Oh, Jesus. Sorry, but uh, Schilling, by pitching game four, and this is why I thought it was smart, if you pitch him game five, he's only going to be available for relief in game seven if it gets to game seven. Okay. You, but you pitch him you in four. set up that extra day. I think he was pitching on three days rest from one to four, and then four to seven, you have him three days rest again. Game six, it goes back to Arizona. Randy Johnson starts, and it's an absolute blowout. The weird thing about that game is apparently Andy Pettit in this game, he's a great postseason pitcher and borderline Hall of Famer. He was tipping his pitches. So Arizona builds like a 12-run lead early. Wow. And because of this, they're able to go to the bullpen because they have such a lead, and they get to save Johnson from throwing extra pitches, and it comes back to help them in Game 7 that Schilling is starting. Schilling in Game 7 against Roger Clemens, one of the best baseball games ever. Arizona jumps out to a one-run lead, and then about the seventh inning or so – Schilling throws a splitter. He throws a splitter to Alfonso Soriano, who is a very good low ball hitter. And it, a great pitcher's pitch maybe left it up a little bit too much, but Soriano just parked it into left center field. And you're thinking, oh, here we go. Oh, sweet Jesus, Mariano Rivera coming on for the six out save. And he just blanks Arizona in the eighth. Schilling's gone, but you have Randy Johnson pitching this, in relief. Yes. I mean, it, that's why I say it was a brilliant move to have him because you keep the game close, and then obviously in seven, well, in game seven, you literally have your two best pitchers, Schilling starting Johnson. It, the way this all works out, and then luckily Gonzalez hits that little looper. Oh yeah, no, he hits that humpback liner basically. Yeah. but the infield was drawn in because of the less than two outs and the bases loaded and stuff, which really came back to help them and Schilling is finally a world champion not only is he a world champion co-mvp of the world series with randy johnson yep well deserved i uh, mean oh that was that's what i love was that partnership was such a one-two punch that yeah they they 100 percent deserve the co-mvp and i think they were both they could uh, only have co-sai youngs you know but exactly both both were totally deserving both were great and sports illustrated men of the year they both shared that that year It, it was they that was their obviously Diamondbacks best year, but I feel like that was the beginning of Schilling showing like, no, I'm going to show up in every playoff game. It's not only that, but that's the series that, and we'll see this where he goes in free agency or where he's traded. This is where he develops the reputation as the Yankee killer. Oh yes, definitely. Because New York had just come off four straight, or four World Series championships in five years, and in that World Series, they put them down. And everybody at that time was chasing the Yankees, and everybody was like, man, we got to find guys who play well against them. And Schilling kind of established himself as that pitcher. And he had some great comments. They were asking him about like, oh, what about the mystique and aura of Yankee Stadium? And he's like, the only times I've heard mystique and aura are at a strip club. Like that's the thing is he just kind of let his mouth go. So. Yeah, he, he he had some good ones. He's had some bad ones, but he's he definitely had some good ones. Yeah, well, I imagine that kind of happens. But you're right. This is where, I mean, 
I guess it, it really lays the ground for his next trade. Yeah, I mean, but 2003 or 2002, 2002, 23 wins, all star. Uh, Two, over almost 260 innings pitched, over 300 strikeouts. Uh, had a great start against the Cardinals in the NLDS, but yep. St. Louis that year just ran right through him. And then 2003, he gets hurt, and Arizona's kind of like, well, rebuild. The, the, and it was like the Ed Belfort thing. It's like we're in a rebuild. We have Brandon Webb. We have a whole bunch of young starters. Like, yep. Thank you for everything, you magnificent bastard. But like. Let's try and trade him for some prospects to a team that really wants to make a run this next year. And the reason I brought up the Yankee killer reputation is where he goes. <laughs> In uh, 2004, uh, actually not 2004, after the 2003 season, so yes. around Thanksgiving time, uh, 11, uh, I shouldn't say 11, November 28th, 2003, he's traded for Mike Goss, Casey Fossum, Brandon Lyon, and uh, Jorge De La Rosa. To the Boston Red Sox. Yeah. He's finally back in Boston. Yeah, it comes full circle where he got drafted. So I, I always I f always find that to be ridiculously interesting. And the Red Sox at this time were like in desperate need for a 20-win pitcher. Well, they need a 20-win pitcher. They need a veteran on their staff who's been there before. And they're still reeling after, A, the Game 7 ALCS lost the year before – but also that offseason when A-Rod, the A-Rod trade didn't work out for them. So And, and he went to And he the went to the evil empire, yeah. yes. And uh, 2004, he's the ace of the staff. This was another second place finish in the Cy Young where they gave it to... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, this was the other one. I think it was Bartolo Colon who won. And this is like Bartolo Colon kind of as he's starting to turn into hedonism bot from oh, yeah. Futurama. You know, like that fat bastard, man, he pitched forever. Good for him. Yeah. But uh, 2004, another 20 game, uh, 21 and 6 record, uh, all-star, 3.28 ERA, another two, over 200 innings pitched, over 200 strikeouts. Won uh, game one against the Angels in the uh, ALS, ALDS. Yeah, they're uh, they're going the wild card route, uh, card route though this year because uh, the Yankees again dominate the division. Um, but during that Anaheim series, because I think they were calling themselves Anaheim at the time. Mm -hmm. I I don't. I was gonna say I just call them Angels because yeah. it's so the. Uh, Los Angeles brought to you by Orange County Anaheim Angels, whatever the fuck it's called. But no, uh, he hurt uh, a tendon in his ankle. Yeah. And it definitely showed in game one of the, uh, I believe it was game one of the uh, ALCS, um, where he just got rocked by New York. Yep. It's funny because the two postseason games he loses, he loses in the World Series to a superior lineup, and then the other one he loses. The only two postseason losses of his entire career – and the other one, he's pitching on one foot. And he's injured, and I bet it was unquestionable that he was going to pitch that game. Yeah. It, like, that's the way he is set up, and that's why I, I actually really loved him as a pitcher. Oh, he was, as a player? As Man, a player. he was great. Oh, God. And that's the thing is, you could tell he's hurt, and they actually go down to the Yankees 3-0. Yeah. So it, it's, it's such an interesting... This season, this series is so timeless for baseball that... First and only time it's ever happened in baseball. A team went down 3-0, and then he comes back game six. Am I right? He comes back game six. They have um, 
some sort of sheath. They call it a Kurt Schilling procedure. That's what, and now it's actually called that, like the yeah. the Schilling procedure. And if you know, if you're trying to ride those broken tendons, like it, it it's pretty disgusting. But they were essentially injecting him and numbing it and doing other stuff. So it's it's a whole thing. But it breaks during the game, and this is why they always call it the bloody sock game. Yep. Is throughout the telecast, you could see on his right foot. Just blood just blood. Seep, yeah blood just blood. seeping out yeah it well i won't go into that but it was it didn't look good but he pitched seven strong innings to keep them to force a game seven yeah there's only been one other time and it actually happened last year that a team up team down three to zero has ever forced, forced. a game seven granted yeah. houston thankfully lost but um yeah it was the only time and they win game seven they, they kicked the shit out of the Yankees at Yankee Stadium, which had to feel just amazing after letting it go and Grady Little and Pedro the year before. And it's like, this is what we brought this guy in for. This is exactly what we brought this guy in for. Well, it had to have felt so great as a Yankee killer last year, beating him in the World Series, this year going down 3-0 and no team ever had done this before and coming back and winning. And it like... It, it it has to be like a feeling like beating like the Michael Jordan Bulls. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where, which I mean, we know how many times that happened, but it, <laughs> it, it's such an iconic uniform team and they were this huge the biggest rival. Yeah, yeah, their biggest rival. That's why it must have meant so much. I loved it so much. And you're right, the bloody sock game and then they go on to... And he pitches in the World Series yeah. and he starts a game and wins. And still it was bleeding out his shoe on that one, I think, but not as not as ridiculous. Yeah, not as profusely. Yeah. But yeah. They go on to sweep, uh, who was it, St. Louis uh, 4-0, which, I mean, that was the other 86 thing. 86 years, you just end it and like... That's what. That's why I find him so fascinating. It's like he's the hired gun you bring in, and then he does exactly what you want him to do. Well, he's the hired gun that was brought in to end the curse of the Bambino, and he still can't get in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. That's what's so... He has all these moments that are so influential. They're iconic. Fucking baseball. And they're just still like, nah, nah, he said some shit. Didn't take performance-enhancing drugs. Came out. He was one of the huge ones talking shit on all these yeah. guys, which I loved that. But yeah, no, it, it, and we'll get into it, but uh, 2005, the ankle's kind of giving him trouble. Yep. Doesn't even pitch in the Red Sox LDS loss against uh, Chicago. 2006 wins another 15 game. You can start to see though his numbers kind of dip, but he's 39, 40 years old. Yep, he wins 15 he's, games. He still pitches over 200 innings and has 183 strikeouts. This is his 18th, 19th season. Yeah, like, it's exactly. Crazy. And then uh, 2007 is when uh, he comes back for one more year. Kind of at the point where it's like, well, you know, like it's it. Everybody kind of knows it's the end. Yes, definitely. But he won three games in that postseason. Yeah. He won He won this last postseason start against the uh, Rockies in the World Series. I mean, 24 innings pitched and 16 strikeouts. They sweep the Rockies. He's a three-time world champion. Three-time world champion on probably two teams that wouldn't have gotten there without him. You know, with only two postseason losses, eleven so, and two. Just to point, yeah, just to point out how much like he was not 
barely going to the postseason with three World Series, only two postseason losses, and one of them was on one leg. And a few of them were completely blown by, by his yes. bullpen with Mitch Williams and Young Young Kim or whatever his name was. Man, was he an amazing pitcher. He was, goddamn. <laughs> but uh, 2080 misses uh, the season, and by uh, May 23rd, 2009, he calls it a career. I wanted to bring this up, though. 216 and 146 was his career record. 3.46 ERA, and he at the time he had the 15th most strikeouts with 3,116. How does a guy with 3,000 plus strikeouts not be in the Hall of Fame? Well, Chris, <laughs> there have been some things that have happened since his retirement that uh, have affected his Hall of Fame uh, kind of credentials. Status? Yeah, yeah, credentials. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we're excluding the Cy Young bullshit because that has no no. That's to no. This. That is no bearing on anybody that understands what's going on with baseball. But he starts because he actually had some troubles with reporters throughout his career. Like yeah. he had troubles with guys in Arizona. I saw like well, he, his personality. Like while he wants the spotlight. If you're going to criticize him or press him in a way that he doesn't like, oh, he'll fire back at you. Yes. And that's And this is a time when social media is getting very popular, not only amongst the kids, but amongst the adults. And he is um doing the Little League World Series at this point. So I think it's 2010. Oh. 10 i was yeah. gonna say 11 to like because he gets a job with espn and yeah to his credit he was great on espn calling baseball games no disrespect there it's just some other things that he did and we've seen this from baseball announcers a bunch to be honest like they start going off at the mouth and it's like oh that's what you believe maybe <laughs> you should sit down yeah so take the next few plays off champ yeah exactly or brick but uh yeah he uh uh, not only had that, uh, he had made some comments uh, regarding some right-wing uh, talking points. Well, I want to I want to talk about his comments, and then I want to really shoot holes into something that he says. So he went and did when North Carolina was doing the bathroom. Yeah. Um, the not- it was the Frank Reynolds picture, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. It was that kind of stuff. So he really went like really anti-trans, if you will, that kind of stuff, that angle. And then like a year or two later, he went really like anti-Muslim. Yeah, he said he said some pretty disparaging things that I'm not going to repeat. Well, like, yeah, I was going to say, he was like really, really stacking these anti-groups. And then when he got essentially, I hate to use the, the fucking word canceled, but when they essentially told him like, hey, we're not going to be putting you on air ever again yeah and that that was during a time where he had that like what was it that failed um uh video game yeah uh company that he had yeah he tried to go hard in 38 video games. studios and i think he defaulted on like a 150 million dollar loan from the state of rhode island i mean it hasn't been the his post playing career hasn't been kind to him for his image. He had the mouth cancer thing. Well, no. the thing that he came out and said he was like, "I'm being canceled because I'm a conservative." And what I hate more than anything is, it was like, "No, you're being canceled or whatever," because you're ridiculously 
racist, homophobic, that kind of stuff. His, and his social media looked like kind of the worst parts of 4chan and Twitter at yes, times. Yes, it or, has... Or 4chan and uh, Reddit. It has nothing to do with your political views, and I feel like that's what I hate more than anything. It's like real conservatives are like, no, you idiot. Like, I'm, that's not... You know I'm a conservative. I haven't I mean. been canceled yet. Well, it's like... <laughs> Mostly because I have you, tacked online. Well, it's like, why would you... It's it blows my mind, but what pisses me off even more is that his social media comments, all of his post career stuff, gets put into the Hall of Fame question because yeah. that is so ridiculously wrong, and especially with baseball. Well, it's pathetic with baseball. Number one, I mean, social media aside, you're judged by your playing career, number one. Number two, regardless if he works for Breitbart and The Blaze, he has his own thoughts and opinions. That's Are they based in reality? Most of the time, probably not. But exactly. you know what? He's allowed to have them. You're allowed to have them. Who cares? You, you know what you do with people like that? You just laugh. Exactly. I don't agree with what he's saying, but I agree with the, the right that he has... To Absolutely. have these yeah. thoughts. Go ahead. And I don't think he should be penalized, even though the anti, I mean, like he has a bit of a list, even though that shit, like he shouldn't be working for ESPN. But the fact that he was in all these iconic baseball situations and a and badass dude, one of the, like we've said, top 15 in strikeouts, like that's insane. And his strike to walk ratio, he is led the league so in whip a few crazy. times. Yeah. Like, he had tremendous control after yeah. joining the Phillies. I mean, and here's the other thing that just boggles my mind. Baseball will put guys like Ty Cobb or Kennesaw Mountain Landis in the Hall of Fame. Gentleman's agreement, horrible racist, even for his time, a man of his times. And you're going to deny this guy the Hall of Fame? It's kind of pathetic because of personal grudges that the media have. Yeah. I mean, like... No, you put him in in a Phillies or Red Sox cap and you go, Hall of Famer. Well, and Hall of Fame person, eh, we can debate that, but baseball Hall of Famer, absolutely. I was going to say, the, uh, the quote that I'm kind of sticking to is, he definitely was a two-pitch pitcher, but uh, he was a five-tool asshole. Yeah. And that's why he just didn't get in. <laughs> But you know what? Those two pitches were probably the most dominant in the game at that time. Oh, absolutely. That splitter. Oh, man. Great stuff. Hey, everybody. This is just a stock message at the end of every episode. We hope you enjoyed whatever athlete and or team that that episode was about. Just want to say give us a quick follow on all social media. We have a YouTube channel, the Sports Experience Podcast, and we're on Instagram, Detolo Dominic and myself, C. Quinn Comedy. So give us a follow all around. Um, we're always recording right here at Angle Studio. Thank you all very much. <laughs>